Christian friends, it was just a few years ago, my two oldest sons, Walker and Reed, started up a very fascinating conversation around our dinner table one night. And this conversation was based on a series of discussions that had unfolded in their American history class. Now, you'll remember a few weeks back when I was away on vacation, I had a friend filling the pulpit here, Craig Regal. You'll remember that. Well, Craig, uh, Craig's regular job is teaching high school at Emmanuel Christian School. And it was in Craig's history class where this discussion really got its start. Craig was teaching the high schoolers in his class about the period of the American Revolution. And he was stirring up their minds to think about how difficult it would be for people to choose a side in that conflict, especially if the people happened to be a Bible-believing Christian. Now, what stirred up my sons the most and what really brought on this conversation at our dinner table was when Craig Regal said that if he had lived during the time of the American Revolution, he probably would have remained loyal to England and to King George rather than to join the loud voices of those who called for revolution and for independence. So I put the question to you this morning, Christian friend. What might you have done if you were a faithful Christian living in the colonies in, say, late 1775 or early 1776? What would you have done? Would you have been a loyalist? to Great Britain and the king? Or would you have been on the side of independence and throwing off England's rule? Now, before you answer, remember what the Bible says in Romans chapter 13 about Christians being in submission to governing authorities, the authorities that have been established by God himself. And England was that authority. Now, we could say that England was being a harsh government for sure. England was very harsh, but wasn't Rome harsh too? Didn't Jesus Christ pay his taxes to Rome? Rome, of course, was a brutal government at times. And we have to remember too that England was not forbidding the worship of God. They weren't telling Christians that they couldn't worship or pray. England was not trying to put down Christianity or churches or the Bible. But then, of course, on the other side of the coin, the other side of the discussion, England's government was revoking rights. Rights that those Englishmen believed were theirs. Rights that the colonists believed that many of them were God-given rights. Rights that were given by the Creator. Rights like life, liberty, the pursuit of one's own happiness. Tyranny is a form of government, isn't it? Tyranny is a form of government, but it is an evil kind of government. And aren't Christians called to stand up and speak out against evil in all of its forms? So I ask you again, Christian friend, I ask you a second time, what side would you have chosen? Would you have chosen to remain loyal to England and the empire of his royal majesty? Or would you have been a revolutionary patriot? Those are the choices. It's one or the other. You would have to choose one or the other. Family, we're going to take our Bibles this morning, and we're opening to Galatians chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to listen as Paul holds out to the Galatian Christians a similar question. Whose side are you on? 
Just like Craig Regal presented my two sons with that true-to-life historical situation and asked them to evaluate themselves and then choose a side here in Galatians 4. Paul holds out a true-to-life historical situation from biblical history. And he asks the Galatians to consider themselves and choose a side. Family, let's go here to Galatians 4 this morning in this message that I've entitled, Whose Side Are You On? Now, if you're just joining us here in this series, the Galatians were people that Paul had previously led to faith in Jesus Christ. But now the Galatians were wavering. They were wobbly. They hadn't completely turned their backs on Jesus but they were slowly starting to lean into the rules, the regulations, all the rituals of Judaism. And they were leaning into that stuff because false teachers had come into their midst and were putting pressure on them, pressure to follow all the rules of Judaism. Well, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is, has been using all kinds of arguments to push back against the errors of these false teachers Paul's been using all kinds of arguments. He's used biographical arguments. He's used logical arguments, theological arguments, even personal arguments, as he's trying to defend justification by faith alone. Well, family, in this section we're going to look at this morning, Paul invites his readers to consider an illustration from biblical history, a famous account that involved none other than Father Abraham himself, the very father of the Jewish nation. Well, friends, as we look at this section, what insights does Paul emphasize? What would this matter? What would this mean to these Galatian Christians who heard these insights? And what can Christians like you and I learn from this text today? Friends, just before we start digging into this text, what I want us to do is read it first. Let's read it together. Then the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to revisit that historical scene that Paul makes reference to. And then thirdly, we're going to come back to this text, and we're going to break it down and make sense of it for the Galatians and for our lives as well. Okay, so I hope you have your copy of God's Word. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. This is where we'll be today. Galatians 4, verse 21 down through verse 31. Paul says, tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? 
Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Family, we've been learning in a number of messages and sermons in this series, the Galatians were being influenced by false teachers. And they wanted these Galatian Christians to take a step backward, as it were, and to go backward from faith in Jesus Christ and to go back to the rules and the regulations and all the rituals of Judaism. So in verse 21, Paul says, really, is that what you want to do? Tell me this, Galatians, you who are so zealous about going back to the law, have you never read the law? Don't you remember what's in the Old Testament scriptures? Have you never paid attention to what's there? And so, friends, in, what, in these verses that follow, Paul now uses an illustration. An illustration out of history, out of biblical history, from the book of Genesis, to illustrate the massive dividing line, the line between grace and law, the line between faith and works. The two sides are obvious, and you can only pick one. Now, family, the only way we can make sense out of this Galatians passage is if we take just a minute or two to consider the event, the history that Paul is alluding to. So let's do that. Let's just take a quick minute here to just do a quick flyover of the historical situation that involved Abraham, the father of the nation, and what exactly happened here with these two women and the two sons? Because listen, until you get that clear, until you get a little sense of the history, you'll never make sense of this Galatians passage. So let's just take a minute to go back to, to, to Genesis. Genesis chapter 16. Would you turn there? We're just going to look at a few verses quickly. I'm not going to preach on them. I just want to mention them so you know what Paul is talking about. Back in Genesis 16 verse 1. Genesis 16, 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, and Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he, that's Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Family, you might remember God gave Father Abraham an incredible promise that this promise that Abraham was going to have innumerable descendants and his descendants were going to become a great nation and out of his descendants there would be blessing that would come to the entire world. The only problem is, at this point, Abraham had no kids. Not even one child. And so Abram panics. And so his wife Sarai says, take my servant then. Take my female servant, my female slave, this Egyptian woman named Hagar. See if you can have a baby with her. We've got to have a descendant somehow. Maybe she can give you one. Well, of course, this was an awful mistake by Abraham. He wasn't operating by faith, was he? 
He was simply operating by the flesh. And that child was born, a child named Ishmael. And this child became a terrible rift between these two women. Now, go over just a few pages to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac. God had promised Abraham he would have a son. You will have a son, Abraham. And when they heard that news, they laughed. They laughed because they were so old. They were so beyond childbearing years. Isaac's arrival happens about 17 years, 18 years after Ishmael had been born to Hagar. But God had made a promise and God kept his promise. And Isaac was born. Isaac was born as a result of God's supernatural working. So Ishmael wasn't the son of promise. Isaac was. And because of that, this conflict continues. Look down at verse 8. Same chapter we're in. Genesis 21, verse 8. 21, 8. Genesis 21, 8. So the child grew. This is Isaac. So the child grew and became weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore, verse 10, she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. What Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the seed of the bondwoman because he is of your seed. Family, God promised Abraham that this son would come and Isaac did come. On the day that Isaac was weaned off his mother's breast, Abraham threw a feast, a big celebration. This boy has lived, he's alive, he's healthy. This big feast, big celebration. But Abraham turns and looks, and there's Ishmael, his other son, this 17, maybe 18-year-old, and Ishmael is laughing. He's mocking. Now, why is he doing that? He's laughing because here's Abraham making such a big deal out of this son, Isaac. But he, Ishmael, he was the older son. And everybody knows the older son is the heir who gets all the property and the family name and all the stuff. He was so confident he was going to be the heir. So again, you see here this conflict, this disdain that's happening between the two wives and the two sons. So Sarah tells Abraham, enough, enough, time to separate. Send Hagar and send Ishmael away. Let them, let them go their own way. Let them make their own family. And to that assertion, God agrees. So this whole ugly ordeal with Hagar and with Ishmael, all the conflict, this wasn't, this wasn't God's doing. Abraham caused all this strife. Abraham caused all this animosity. So Hagar and Ishmael, they depart. 
The separation is made. It's cut off. It's complete. It's finalized. And so now God is going to continue to work his eternal purposes through the line of Isaac. Isaac, who was the promised son. Family, that's the context. That's the backstory you need to understand if you're going to make any sense out of that passage that we're going to go to now in Galatians 4. So friends, as we come now to Galatians 4, Paul is using that famous backstory as an illustration. He's going to use it as an illustration or an analogy, a teaching tool to the Galatians to show them that they need to make a final break they need to have a final separation from those legalistic Jewish false teachers. The teachers that are teaching them error. The ones that want to lead them away from faith in Christ. Paul is going to use this story as an illustration to drive home that truth. Now family, here in our Galatians text, let me show you four features that Paul emphasizes. So will you, will you jot these down in your notes? These four features... In this illustration, four features in this analogy. What does it mean for the Galatians and what does it ultimately mean for you and me? Well, let's consider these four. First of all, number one, compare the two women. Number one, compare the two women. When we step through those verses in Galatians 4, Paul takes that story out of biblical history and he uses that story to call the Galatians back to the truth, back to the side of the gospel. And family, when we read that narrative and when we read Paul's text here in Galatians 4, you can't escape the number 2. Did you notice that? You can't escape the number 2. Look in Galatians 4, verses 22 and 23. Two different sons were born, and they came from two very different women. Remember, Abraham was not willing to wait. He pressed the issue. He had physical relations with this slave woman, Hagar. Hagar was not free. Hagar was a slave. Hagar was a servant. But Sarah, Sarah was free. Now why is that important? Well, it's important because in ancient times, so goes the mother, so goes the child. If a slave woman gave birth to a child, the social status of the mother passed to the son. So Hagar, being a slave, gave birth to a son, Ishmael. That means he is a slave under his social status. But if a mother was free and gave birth to a child, then that child was free. So here's a first comparison Paul wants you and I to think about. This comparison, the contrast of the women, slave versus free. Here's number two. Compare the two sons. Number two, compare the two sons. Here's these two sons of Abraham. And it isn't only slave versus free that Paul wants us to think about. Paul takes takes great pains to point some other things out, too, in his illustration here. Look at verse 23, family. Galatians 4, verse 23. Paul says, But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Ah, what's Paul talking about here? Now he's talking about the stark contrast in the way the two sons were conceived. Think about Ishmael. How was Ishmael conceived? Wasn't Ishmael conceived as a result of Abraham, Abraham's impatience? Wasn't it their unwillingness to wait on God? Wasn't it their lack of faith that made them pursue this conception to have Ishmael be born? 
No miracle was there, was there, with Ishmael. Nothing special, nothing supernatural, nothing unique. But on the other hand, Isaac, Isaac, his conception was very special, very unique. When Isaac was conceived, something miraculous had to happen because Sarah and Abraham were so old. They were far beyond childbearing years, and so God had to move and supernaturally work to bring life into Sarah's womb again. So Sarah's womb was dead and dry and barren, lifeless, and God brought life there and let them have Isaac, the son of promise. So you have two very different women, you have two very different sons, but where's Paul going with all this anyway? Well, we're going to get there, but let me show you this thirdly, another comparison. Compare the two covenants. Compare the two covenants. Family in this section that we're studying, Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul is taking this biblical history, this biblical story, and he's bringing it up to the Galatians as an illustration to teaching something spiritual, to teach them something about what real salvation is and where it's really found. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 of our text. We're in Galatians 4. Look at verse 24. Paul talks about these two women and the two sons. Well, what's his point? Look what Paul says. These things are symbolic. In other words, Paul says there's something to learn here. There's an analogy here. There's an illustration here of something intensely spiritual, something important. Here you have two different women, two very different sons, and in, in many ways, they are both representative of two very different covenants. When you stop to think about the law, the law, the Mosaic covenant, all the rules, all the regulations of the Old Testament, what God gave to Moses, we've been learning in our study here in Galatians that there's nothing wrong with God's laws. God's laws are good. God's laws are a reflection of His own righteousness, His own character. God's laws are good. They're holy. They're righteous. But we've learned in recent messages in this series that God's purpose in giving the law under the Old Covenant was not to save people, but to surround them and show them that they can't save themselves. That's what the Old Testament does. It reflects what a great sinner you are and how you can't possibly keep all of these righteous rules that God has given. So the law was given under the Old Covenant not to save man, but to show him his sinfulness. To show sinful human beings that they can't save themselves, not by their own efforts, not by their own religious works. No, salvation must be by the grace of God. But family, isn't it true? Isn't it true for generations and generations the Jews gave themselves to try to accomplish the laws and the rules of God? They would give themselves their best efforts to try to keep the law, live out the rules, submit to all the rituals, all the regulations. If they could just work a little harder, they could make themselves righteous before God. Oh, do you see the similarities here that Paul finds between the old covenant system and what was happening back there with Hagar? Do you see the similarities? More effort, more zeal, make it happen, flesh-driven behavior. 
Ah, but it was through Sarah that Isaac came, the son of the promise. Isaac, part of the covenant of promise. The covenant of promise wasn't about what humans could do. The promise was about what God could do. It was according to God's covenant promise to Abraham that a son was coming. It would be Isaac. And even through Isaac's line, who would ultimately come through that line? But Jesus. Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior of humanity. Just like Isaac, Jesus is the one promised And even Jesus himself came about, not by human efforts or human zeal, but even Jesus came about by the supernatural power of God. And guess what, Christians? That's how you're saved too. Not by human efforts, not by your own zeal in religion, but you too are saved by the power of God, by his grace. When we trust in Christ by faith, We receive God's grace as a gift. It's apart from our own efforts. It's what God does supernaturally to save us and redeem us and bring us out of our sins. And he gives us true spiritual freedom and true spiritual life. It's not by religion. It's by faith in Christ, our Savior. So family, don't miss these powerful comparisons. Two women and two sons and two covenants. But there's one more that Paul wants to highlight. Number four, the two locations. Compare the two locations. Compare the two locations. Family, if I use this this name, the Big Apple, in a sentence, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about New York City. It'd be the same if I said the Windy City. You know I'm talking about Chicago. If I said the City of Angels... I'm talking about Los Angeles. You see, there are word pictures. There's word pictures that are associated with each of those cities. Well, in this section, Paul is continuing to outline these stark contrasts. Two women, two sons, two covenants. Also, they're marked by two cities. Two cities that each of these groups are associated with. If the picture of Hagar... If that is a picture of slavery, of the power of the flesh at work, human efforts, human zeal, that is surely a picture of what is happening in Jerusalem. All the human efforts, the human zeal, the work of religion that people give themselves to there in the city of Jerusalem. Of course, the Jews are there in Jerusalem, absorbed with the law and their religious efforts and the religious rules. They're trying to make themselves righteous before a holy God. But the truth is, they're not free. They're not spiritually free. They're enslaved. They're enslaved because of their own sin. Their own religious efforts doesn't get the job done. Religion and self-effort does not give them God's favor But what about that other city? The city of heaven, Paul says. The heavenly Jerusalem. That is the true home city for all those who've trusted in Christ. When a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ by faith, heaven becomes their true city. You know, friend, that's your true city this morning, Christian. It's not Hazleton. It's not drums. It's not mountaintop. Heaven, that's your city. 
Heaven is your city. And all the believers who have ever trusted in Christ, that is our city. And in, in Christ and in that heaven, our heavenly city, there we are truly free. That freedom even starts now. We are free in Christ and we'll be free for eternity. Family, as you look back into Israel's history, there was a time, you remember, when, when all the Jews got carried off into captivity. You remember that? And when that happened, when Israel was being dissolved for a time and some went off into Babylon and some went off into Assyria, carried off into captivity, there was a real worry. There was a real worry that, man, this was it. This was it for Israel. This was it for God's people. It's going to come to an end. But it wasn't. It wasn't. During that time, Isaiah, the prophet, he made a, he made a prediction. God is still in charge. And there's a day coming. Yeah, the wombs may be closed now, Isaiah said, but there's a time coming when God's going to open all the wombs and Israel's going to burst back on the scene again and many new lives are going to come forth. You know what, family? Paul takes that verse from Isaiah's pen and he brings it up to talk about Christians. That's the verse there in 27 that you see that's italicized. It's Isaiah 54, verse 1. Paul takes it from history and he applies it to every Christian who's had the new birth. God's heavenly city is going to be overflowing with all kinds of people who've had the new birth. The new birth in Christ. And guess what? All those people populating heaven, the free city, the heavenly city, guess what? All those believers, they are not Hagar's children. They are not children of the flesh. They are not children of religion. They are not children of human efforts. They are not the children of Hagar. They are the children of promise. They are the children who have trusted in Christ by faith. The one who came. Jesus, the ultimate son of promise. Family, we've unpacked these four comparisons. That's what Paul's doing here. But what's his point? What's he trying to drive home? Well, can I show you here? Here's number five. If you're taking notes, what does all this mean? What is all this meant to accomplish? All these comparisons. Well, number five, consider the two choices. Which side will you choose? Consider the two choices. Which side will you choose? Family, Paul gets done with all the comparisons in verse 27, and he gets to verse 28 and he turns a corner. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Now, now we, brethren, he's talking to believers. Believers who have exercised faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we believers, we are children like Isaac. We are children of promise. Now family, last Sunday morning we learned all believers are the spiritual heirs of Abraham. Not because we come out of Abraham's bloodline, not because we're in Abraham's biology. No, all believers are the spiritual heirs of Abraham because we, like Abraham, have faith. It's, the, it's faith. We share his same faith. Well, look at verse 29, family. This is interesting. Verse 29, Paul, Paul explains, why is there so much animosity going on in this Galatian church? Why is there so much conflict and infighting between these Christians who are trying to hold on to Christ, but yet there's these false teachers who want to pull them back into Judaism? Why so much conflict? Paul explains it there in verse 29. Just as Ishmael, born of the flesh, 
had conflict and showed hostility to Isaac, who was the son of promise, Paul said it only makes sense. It only makes sense that, that people who are trusting in their religion, people who are trusting in their good works and their zeal in doing religious things, they are going to be antagonistic toward those who say they are simply trusting in Christ by faith. So friends, when you consider all that Paul is explaining here, how should the Galatians respond? Here's this illustration. Paul unpacks it. He wants them to see it. Now what do they do? How should these Galatian Christians respond to these false teachers who said, come on back to Judaism. That's what you really need if you want to be right with God. Come back to Judaism and all the rules, regulations, rituals. What does Paul want the Galatian Christians to do? Look at verse 30. Paul says, what did they say? What did Abraham say? What did Sarah say? Cast out that bondwoman. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with the son of the free woman. You see, Abraham and Sarah knew a break had to happen. A break needed to be made. And God approved it. So Paul's telling the Galatians, it's time to make a break. It's time for a bold choice. Enough with these legalistic Jewish false teachers. Break off from them once and for all. Stop listening to them and send them away and stand firm in the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. That's the only answer, Paul says. Look at verse 31. As Christians, we are not, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Paul's whole point is this. Paul's whole point is to stimulate the Galatian Christians with the truth. He wants them to come back to the side of the truth. Come back to the real gospel. The real truth. The truth that people are only made right with God by faith in Christ. And what do we call that doctrine? We call that doctrine justification by faith alone. That's what Paul is doing. He uses this whole story to say, come back, come back. Justification by faith alone. It's faith in Christ that makes us right with God, not religious rules and regulations in Judaism. Paul says the lines are so clear. It's so obvious. The two sides, the two families, the two futures. Paul says now's the time to make your final choice. What side are you on? Friends, as we shift gears now, as we think about the significance for our lives, can I just speak for a moment to you, those of you here listening who are not Christians? You're here today, you're listening, you're not a Christian. Dear listener, just as Paul challenged his listeners with the two sides and the two futures, I now put that question to you, friend. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of salvation? Are you on the side of Jesus? Are you on the side of faith, which is the side that brings true forgiveness, spiritual freedom, real spiritual life that comes by God's amazing grace? Or are you still on the side of human works and human efforts, human attempts to be good, to be moral, to be religious, to work one's way to heaven 
by being a good person and being religious and doing good deeds. Oh, friend, the Bible says there are no in-betweens. There are no in-betweens. You have either trusted Jesus Christ or you haven't. Either you are looking within yourself for salvation or you are looking to Christ. It is one or the other. There are no in-betweens. Your destiny for eternity will be heaven or it will be hell. There are no in-betweens. So I ask you, which side are you on? What side are you on? I pray that God would open your eyes today, show you the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And when you trust him by faith, you become a son or a daughter of God. But for those of you listening now, you are a Christian. You are a Christian. Let me talk to you for a moment, but let me approach this from just a slightly different angle. As a Christian, you have already made your stand with Jesus. You have done that. You have invited Jesus Christ by faith into your life and heart. But just like these Galatians, just because you have exercised faith in Christ doesn't mean doesn't mean that you are somehow exempt from various antagonists and adversaries who want to come alongside of you and try to make your faith unstable. Listen, believers, there are people in every generation, some who want to come alongside of you and sidetrack you from the solid ground that you stand on in Jesus Christ. And there are some people who want to come alongside of you and pull you off center from that trusting faith in Jesus. They want to pull you off to something lesser, something inferior to the true gospel. Listen, in the 21st century, we have some people saying that to really be a Christian, you need to be a political activist. If you really want to be a Christian, they say, you need to fight hard for every right-wing, ultra-conservative political cause. They say that's what you need to do if you're really a Christian. Others will say that to really be a Christian, you have to be about social justice. If you're really a Christian, your focus will be on clean water and quality education and healthy food and socialized medicine for all people. They say that's what a real Christian is about. Still other people would say something different. They would say that if you really want to be a Christian, well, you have to submit to all of these, let's call them holiness codes. The kind of codes that say that women should never wear pants in church. They say women ought always to wear dresses in church. Or that men must always wear a jacket and tie in church. Or they say codes like this, that going to a movie theater is always wrong and playing cards is always wrong. And the list could go on and on of the holiness codes that some would say, this is what you need to do if you really want to be a Christian. Family, you and I every day, are challenged by those who would seek to call us away from the freedom, the liberty, the true spiritual life that we have in Christ. So here it is, Christian. Christian, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Will you listen? Will you bend? Will you capitulate to those who would want to draw you away from the truth of Christ 
alone. Will you hold fast to everything that you have in Christ and in the Gospel? Will you stand firm and will you say, no, no, I won't go back into the slavery of some man-made regulations. I won't go back to religious rules. I won't go back into empty rituals. I won't turn away from the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died to set me free. You know, Christian friends, I won't soon forget that extended conversation I had around the dinner table with Walker and Reed. I'll never forget it. As we sat there, and we had a very deep conversation about what it would have been like for us, even as a family, to live in the colonial period, and what side would we have chosen? You know, family, since that day, I've thought about it many times. I've thought about it often. Would I have committed myself to remain a faithful servant of the crown, or would I have taken up the cause of American liberty? Well, of course, as God would have it, I wasn't alive in those days, but I am alive in these days. And so are you, Christian. And right here, right now, you and I have this question set before us daily. Whose side are you on? Law or spirit? Slavery or freedom? Works or faith? Friends, may God help us by the empowering of His gospel and the enabling of His Holy Spirit that every day we will hold fast to Christ alone by faith alone. Thanks for listening. This preaching for a change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.